I think we will achieve recovery. The question is, will we make serious progress on the underlying issues that have plagued us for so long? What impact does the pandemic have on the global trading system? What role will trade play in the global recovery and global economy of the future? After COVID-19, what steps are needed to make the trading system more sustainable and more inclusive? These are some of the questions tackled by the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. The series moderator is Rem Korteweg of the Klingendal Institute. Hello and welcome to the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, a series of podcast conversations with leading thinkers on the future of international trade. My name is Rem Korteweg. I'm a senior research fellow at the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands. And today we're talking about how to coordinate a global post-COVID economic recovery and how to prevent the economic recovery from leading to more protectionism. And for this, I'm honored to be joined by two fantastic experts in the field, one a practitioner, the other an academic. From Washington, D.C., I'm joined by Mary Lovely, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute and Professor of Economics, and Melvin A. Eggers, Faculty Scholar at Syracuse University's Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs. Mary's expertise focuses on international economics and China's development. And from Paris, I'm joined by John Denton. John is the Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce. He is a well-known global leader in the field of international trade and investment. Amongst many other things, he is a board member of the United Nations Global Compact, the United Nations Development Program Impact Investing Group, and the United Nations Children's Fund GenU Project. He is also a founding member of Business 20, B20, a group of businesses that aim to translate G20 priorities more effectively to the business community. John and Mary, thank you very much for joining me today. Now, in, in order to shield themselves from the impact of the pandemic, countries have been pursuing self-interested policies. Whether we look at vaccine rollout or access to critical medical supplies, it appears that nationalist reflexes are actually quite strong and that dependencies on suppliers abroad are sometimes seen as a liability. And a narrative is starting to take hold that economic resilience can only be achieved through more self-reliance. And obviously this has detrimental consequences for the future of international trade. Now, before we get started, we're recording this one or two days after the G7 summit at Carbis Bay, Cornwall. And Mary, I'd like to get your thoughts first on um, what came out of the G7 summit. Was the G7 able to tackle some of these protectionist reflexes we see in the international economic system? Well, you know, it was nice to have a G7 where the leaders were basically making nice. Uh, that's at least a start. There were some nice declarations, but I didn't think we saw a lot of, you know, rubber hitting the road. Some of the issues that were discussed ended up with declarations of principles, but really very little behind them. 
We also saw some outright spats. Uh, for example, on the Northern Ireland border issue, we saw you know some little bit of fireworks between Boris Johnson and President Macron, France. Uh, so I think we're still seeing border issues leading to disputes as opposed to uh, settlement of some of these issues. Another issue that remains unsettled is, of course, how the U.S. will handle the Trump era Section 232 or national security tariffs on steel and aluminum, something that's the removal of which is very important for the European Union, uh, who have long said it's an abomination that they're being uh, subject to national security uh, measures, given that they are the U.S. closest allies. So we didn't, we didn't, we expected that there might have been, there were some reports that there would be. Um, we're not seeing that. Another area where we saw some nice happy thoughts, but didn't see much yet behind it is President Biden's push for an alternative to China's Belt and Road Initiative. This could be potentially very important for Western leadership, but um, we don't really have any idea of where the financing for that will come or how it will be rolled out and how quickly it will be rolled out. So again, some uh, nice change in tone, some promising ideas, but not a lot of details. Great. Thank you. And now... We've talked a little bit about the G7 summit in Cornwall. What were your main takeaways if you look back over the previous, uh, the previous couple of days of negotiations in Cornwall? Well, well I think like Mary, uh, uh, it was notable for its um, affability, save on issues that actually mattered to people. <laughs> um, and I say that uh, because I think one of um, President Biden's hallmarks has been is certainly created a more affable and um, amiable environment for which, uh, in which discussions can take place. The challenge, of course, is to turn that affability and amiability into an outcome. And uh, what's interesting for me, uh, we had a particular focus in the ICC. We focus on three things, growing the global economy, reviving global trade and advancing sustainability. And in particular, with the first two, we're heavily involved, and I sit, for example, on the COVAX Council uh, as the only private sector representative, which in itself is an interesting observation. But um, we see the issue of um, ending the pandemic as the best prospect for actually enabling growth in the economy. So we're heavily involved in that. And when we talk about ending the pandemic, we, we actually do mean ending it everywhere. So I'm heavily engaged in the debate about equitable access. And so we were very focused in, our, in the lead up to this summit in Cornwall on um, what we were told by the leader of the G7, the Prime Minister of the, U, the still United Kingdom, that we would see an outcome on vaccine distribution which would uh, be of the same quality uh, and ambition as the Marshall Plan. So judging the outcome by the test that was set by the leader of the G7, we, we mark it a fail. Um, I know that sounds a little cruel, and to some it might sound a little churlish because there is no doubt that the leaders of the G7 have promised to increase access and distribution of vaccines by what was originally a billion, though the fine print now looks a bit closer to 800 million, big numbers no matter what. But they know what the true number is that needs to be achieved, and it's 11 billion, and they have chosen not to achieve that number. They know what's important and they have decided against that. So from my perspective, 
if we're seeking to grow the global economy and we see bringing the pandemic to an end and we see the equitable access to vaccines and improved production and supply of vaccines as critical to that, then the G7, as affable and as amiable as the environment may have been, has not lived up to the hype. In fact, um, it was almost, it almost looked to a cynic and far be it from me to be cynical. I'm ultimately a business person, so fundamentally optimistic. Uh, as a well-orchestrated distraction. Uh, as I say, they know what is important. They know what the number is ne that is needed. But what they seem to be doing is balancing that against what they see as domestic political risk. That's hardly global leadership. Now, that's the key issue we focused on, to be frank. And we are obviously focused on digital issues and trade issues as well. But I thought I, bear in mind, I had the opportunity to just get that off my chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but the, I mean, in all frankness, the, 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 COVID pandemic has shown us instances of, uh, of nationalism, of, of economic nationalism, but also very strongly of vaccine nationalism, uh, both on the side of uh, the European Union as well as on the side of the, uh, the United States. H how do we get beyond that mindset? Well, I think defining the problem appropriately and accurately would help the The argument I've had with the European Union, particularly when it introduced export controls on the export of vaccines, was that they were actually dealing with the wrong problem. The actual issue was not redistribution of what exists, but actually the increase in the ramping up of supply of what we need. How do you increase production and enable supply chains to operate effectively? That's the right problem. And uh, I don't know about you, but a uh, discussion um, that I suppose I've led on a global basis is that don't you get the feel that no one's actually kind of running this show? That there is actually a lack of governance? Uh, one idea that we come up with was that maybe we should create some global governance to enhance the capacity to increase production and enable supply and plan for the future. So putting aside what is um, just a fundamental that all export restrictions on therapeutics should be lifted, And if you want to get into the numbers, or maybe Mary's got them on the top of her head, but if you look at the increase of export restrictions on even therapeutics, the G7 is actually a leading player in the increase in export controls, and Simon Everett's just shown that quite powerfully. But what we're saying is you need to get transparency over the supply chain. You actually need to look at where there's underutilized capacity and do matchmaking, and you actually need to put in place longer-term financing to actually enable this. Frankly, from my perspective, the TRIPS debate, by the way, is um, it's an important debate to have, but that's not going to increase production. And we are 100% focused on increased production, access to supply, because we're focused on um, growing the economy on a global basis. So I actually do think that's the right issue to focus on. That's the right problem to be solved, not the redistribution of existing amounts of supply. Uh, Mary, what does this look like from the United States point of view? Well, you know, I think John is right. We are facing, rather shockingly, government failure. And I think that to solve the problem, coordination is needed, but also some recognition of what kind of incentive-compatible sort of institutions could be built. So when the pandemic hit, you know, there's a surge in demand that that's the private supply chains haven't been built to um, 
to meet because, you know, it's a, it's a shock. Nobody saw it. So we have to recognize that and um, so that it's not going to happen perfectly and prepare for the future. Given that, we also have to recognize that there's enormous and really, I think, you know, unresistible pressure on national authorities to meet the needs of their citizens. So we decry nationalism. But in my view, I think that this urge has to be built into systems that we would be build going forward. And I know that's probably a little different than some people. But if we think about what the politicians are going to do, they have to meet the needs of the people who elected them. Having said that, you know, we see the increase in export controls, uh, as uh, John mentioned, documented by, by Simon Even at, at the Global Trade Alert. But there's also a lot of misinformation. So my colleague, Chad Bond at the Peterson Institute, has a new art, uh, article out showing that U.S. did not use export controls to prevent the delivery of materials, critical materials for pharmaceutical uh, production to India. And that a lot of times the suppliers are all drawing on the same uh, input manufacturers. So there is a need for coordination. I would say, well, first, information. So what is going on? And Chad argues that companies should be surveyed. And then transparency so that we don't get this belief that we have to use export controls because they are using export controls. And then coordination, uh, trying to use government resources to find out where the bottlenecks are and increase production and assist as they can with the private sector. Um, that requires cooperation across companies, between the private sector and, and the public sector, and then, of course, across borders, all of which has to be built on a foundation of trust that companies that engage in this, you know, won't end up holding the bag, that they'll actually uh, be valued for their contributions, that the companies that are chosen to participate are chosen on a fair commercial basis, not because they, uh, you know, gave money to the latest campaign, something that we also saw uh, in the United States. And then the, I think the public has to be willing to pay to build redundancy. People were asking, why weren't there stockpiles? I think because, you know, this is a government failure in a sense. People don't want to pay to keep those stockpiles uh, up to date so that the, those those supplies are ready. We saw in the United States that we had stockpiled some materials and they were useless because they were old and they had, they had depreciated. So, you know, there has to be kind of a, well, in the U.S. we call it maybe a coming to Jesus moment <laughs> where we just say, you know, this is how it really is. We have to grow up. And we have to look and say there needs to be coordination, but there also needs to be public support so that when the next big shock hits and um, hopefully it won't be as bad as this one. But nevertheless, it, it, even when it hits, it will be a lot less destructive in this one if we are more prepared. I think that the information is a key. What happened? Where did where did systems break down? And then looking to create a new system that's built on information, transparency, and coordination across these various actors. I, I, couldn't, agree, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is, um, this is a piece that's missing, which is why we sort of devised this idea for the ICC Global Clearinghouse. But again, we surrender ownership. Uh, it's actually really around transparency, matchmaking, and sort of using resources and actually getting prepared for the next time around. And it needs to be curated as a public good uh, you know, we've done the analysis on antitrust. It's, it's all it's all superable. It can all be it can all be achieved. Uh, so that so we're pleased on one level that um, the elements are being um, uh, clearly articulated. It must be a good idea because everyone else is starting to claim it now as well, which is even better. But it's not being op 
operationalized. And that's the bit that, that's why, by the way, I'm really glad that someone like Dr. Ngozi is at the WTO, because of all the um, existing institutions in the Bretton Woods play, uh, in, a, in a way, the WTO needs something like this the most because it's it's basically looked at three years ago and dismissed by many as dysfunctional. But bringing the relevance of the WTO into the COVID period, this period of the pandemic, and actually providing, enabling a leadership coordinating role is something that um, could be transformative, which is what I've argued the WTO was missing uh, for the first 18 months of COVID. But frankly, under Ngozi, because of her experience in um, Gavi, her understanding of uh, from her time at the World Bank, et cetera, and finance ministry, she's potentially the right, I mean, she is the right person, but she's potentially transformative, I think, of this opportunity. And so I think that's really promising as well. And, and there's, there's a, an important role for the WTO to play as well, because we focused a little bit on sort of achieving resilience in health supply chains and sort of being prepared for the next the next wave or the next pandemic. And that's, of course, crucially important. But something is also happening at the broader level. If you zoom out a little bit, we see that there's not just a tendency to focus on protecting your own citizens first, which, as Mary points out, is, is entirely logical from a, from a democratic point of view. But we also see that there are huge fiscal fiscal stimulus packages and huge investment packages being launched, which principally benefit domestic producers or domestic companies. And inevitably, that's going to lead to an unleveling of the playing field. There's going to be a huge discussion up ahead over subsidies. I mean, we used to criticize only a couple, a handful of of non-democratic, non-Western countries for spilling uh, or dishing out a lot of subsidies. Now it's everyone. How is that going to be managed? This, I think, is perennially a topic that the WTO will need to address, but can it? I mean, what are the steps that we need to take when we have the, the seven richest countries or the richest trading blocks principally doing investment and subsidy packages for for their own for their own companies and their own consumers how do we get beyond this and towards a more inclusive approach to an economic recovery mary any any thoughts on that well i think you are putting your finger on the problems that we're sailing into quite rapidly and really are only beginning to talk about um, everybody's happy to see the stimulus package. Uh, it's clear that it was needed. And it's also clear that the U.S. Has, has failed to invest for a long time. Infrastructure, workers, education, a whole list of things that uh, President Biden has included in his, his various pieces of legislation. Uh, we saw the Senate approved by a wide margin just yesterday this Innovation Act, which will you know, spend, I think, three quarters of a trillion dollars on U.S. Uh, innovation and competitiveness, as they call it. So we needed that, but it's unfortunately being done in a way that is meant to privilege um, American producers, American workers. I think it goes more broadly back to what happened before the pandemic. I don't think this is just the pandemic, which is this growing belief that, particularly with the entrance of China into the World Trade Organization, that trade doesn't benefit the average person uh, in a Western country. In the United States, this is known as the China shock, uh, that it hollowed out American manufacturing, that it destroyed so-called good jobs, and is basically something that has to be either stopped or managed. 
that's a problem because it it really has gotten this idea that trade is mostly bad for the American worker and the impulse to uh, help to develop the less developed parts of the globe um, has really been jettisoned. You know, the word technology transfer was a good word. It was a good phrase. It was built into the Doha round. It was meant to be a round in which technology was transferred to help, you know, lift up the poorest people in the globe. And now technology transfer is seen as something that's very negative and associated only with China. I think we're seeing this not only in trade policy, um, but also in the num increasing number of restrictions on inward foreign investment, um, which is something that Simon Evenet has also carefully documented. So I think we're seeing this retreat from globalization that is based on pre-COVID impulses, but has been made worse by COVID. We're going to take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to continue our conversation with Mary Lovely and John Denton about how to coordinate the global post-COVID recovery without resorting to more protectionism. At a time of sluggish and uneven global growth, when geopolitics and the pandemic are stressing the rules-based global system, conversations about international trade and its contribution to global prosperity have never been more important. If you would like to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021. This series is brought to you by AIG and its partners, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown Law School, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jack Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce, UK and France. The Brittlesman Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. We're back from our break I'm joined by John Denton and Mary Lovely. We're going to continue our conversation on how we achieve economic resilience without resorting to protectionism. What you're saying is that the COVID pandemic also brings out probably the sharp edges of, of that trend that, 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 that's already been developing over the past couple of years, if not decades. What, what I'm interested to hear from you, John, is to what extent can international business play a role in pushing back against that that narrative or perhaps even these policies that tend to emphasize looking after your own first and sort of retreating behind your own subsidy packages and to achieve economic resilience by logging out of the international economy. Yeah, well, I mean, one of our jobs, I think, is to show, particularly if you take what we do around the growing economy, reviving global trade and advancing sustainability, is to show that uh, it's it's a lot more interconnected than people like to think. Even if you look at all the reshoring packages that were offered both under the last US administration, and more specifically, uh, looking at the Japanese uh, reshoring uh, packages that were offered, how little effect they actually have. Because the reality is the way in which value is created on a global basis actually is influenced by the operation of global interconnectedness. Now, it may vary from time to time, and uh, clearly there'll be some reorientation and some harping, but also let's not forget supply chains actually generally functioned during uh, the uh, pandemic. Uh, and also uh, we were able to get uh, most things delivered 
uh, you know, the private sector's innovation and its uh, ability to actually, in a way, ride the government interventions and still create a functioning global supply chain and, and platform uh, is a tribute, I think, to the ingenuity of the private sector. And uh, in a sense, also the falseness of the narrative portrayed by governments about uh, the, the failure of supply chains is actually, it was not accurate. Uh, but part of our job, I think, and part of the job of business is to show this interconnectedness, not just to shout about it, but to prove it and to show, for example, on, on vaccines. I mean, uh, uh, one thing that really got, got up my goat, as we say in Australia, which has really irritated me, was that in many respects, the first uh, iteration, even of COVAX and uh, government support globally or on vaccines was all seen as an act of charity. You saw the development ministers trotted out to actually deal with these issues. Whereas the argument we put and we proved um, through a very extensive uh, piece of economic analysis is that it's not an act of charity, it's in your economic self-interest. And we're actually seeing it now uh, because if you look at the challenges to the construction industry, for example, in the UK right now, it's because of the absence or the difficulty getting access to a number of the inputs required to feed the stimulus packages we talked about. Uh, and in the and in Germany, for example, you've seen Volkswagen announce that it will make 100,000 less cars because of supply chain issues. The reason I'm pointing to that is that what we argued was that the actual economic analysis should, when you look at um, vaccinating the world, look at the risk of not doing so. And it's the breakdown of that interconnectedness. The fact that right now you've got the second or third surge in Thailand, which means it's impossible to get to the rubber plantations, to get the rubber, to get access to rubber, which is used as an input for tyres, is actually going to hurt manufacturing jobs in um, in Ohio. You know, it's that interconnectors and we don't, and we and we priced it. It's a, a nine trillion dollar hit to the global economy if left unchecked. And half of that actually will hit the northern, the developed economies. That's 4.5 trillion. So uh, the, the the piece that's sort of um, going back to Mary's point, there is a there is a kind of um, a false narrative that's emerged that interconnectedness or trade as it's called is a bad but actually we show the failure to avail yourself of it is actually the negative. And the failure of uh, politicians to be able to absolutely lead on a, an economic argument is kind of like pretty telling. Um, and so that is an issue here. There is actually the political argument available and the other issue that um, business creates is actually the political cover the political cover to do something about it. We actually create that uh, as a, uh, you know, in our arguments. The, the political leaders are not on their own. We are prepared to actually argue these cases. But isn't that, isn't that fascinating but frustrating at the same time? Because what both of you are saying, if I can paraphrase you. in 2021? <laughs> no, but it, it's, it's what, what both of you are saying is actually that the story of the COVID pandemic is one of the success of global supply chains. It's a story about that global value chains work, that interdependencies and competitive advantage and, and putting your production in areas which uh, which are able to do so most efficiently and effectively makes sense. But politicians, whether from the left or the right, have internalized this idea that the pandemic proved that supply chains have to be reshored, that global value chains are a liability. 
Does this mean that there is absolutely no role for the reshoring or the decoupling agenda, Mary? You know, I'm really thankful for the work that John's organization is doing because we know that this type of investment in global vaccination will pay dividends for for the North, for for the West. And this case needs to be made. I would say the supply chains did work. That doesn't mean that they were perfect, that we were we were hit with this enormous shock. Uh, unfortunately, I think how people saw it was not correct. You know, we've already talked about what we think needs to happen, but it's easier just to blame somebody else and to say so-and-so isn't sharing than actually, I think, in a lot of ways to grow up and say, no, we actually have to put some money here to make sure that the next time it's easier and money into vaccinating uh, the rest of the world so that we can move on. So the the narrative that, you know, resilience equals self-reliance, I think, has been shown repeatedly to be false. Self-reliance means you're on your own. If a shock hits your own, for example, as we saw with the flooding in Texas, uh, without trade, you have no way to get supplies that you need from other other places. Uh, they can't be just turned on after you've turned them off. So this view that self-reliance is the way to go is the definition of resilient supply chains is, is really false. Um, and we're also seeing governments kind of hit the screen in terms of how they can achieve that. As John said, the Japanese program, which I think was for this type of program, was designed rather intelligently, uh, still has had very little impact. I say intelligently because it at least admitted that there were some things that weren't going to be ever done again in Japan. So um, that hasn't had much effect. So the question is, how do we move forward? Should governments be involved in supply chains? I think it's inevitable that they will be. And um, Unfortunately, our increasing hostility toward China kind of obscures what we need to do and is used as an excuse for almost anything. Um, But I think we need to just step back and say, what do we want supply chains to look like in 10 years? And then to figure out how to get there. Instead of taking a piecemeal approach and expecting that these things can be done instantly, uh, to move in a deliberate way to say which supply chains really need to be either at home or with trusted, so-called trusted partners, uh, and which can remain in, in China or in other parts of Asia. There's also, you know, we have to not decouple where it's sort of futile. So for example, in places where there's other suppliers or in places where our allies are not going to support us. Let me give a a, a good example, or I think it's an interesting example, which is that CATL, the the big Chinese battery producer, um, has invested in Germany and is building batteries for electric vehicles. Uh, It will be important in meeting the increasing demand in Europe for these batteries. Would that investment be allowed in the United States? I think it's questionable whether it would have passed a review in the United States. As we've seen from uh, the Global Trade Alert, this type of review is is becoming more prominent, more of a barrier to foreign investment. Uh, So is it true that Chinese batteries won't be part of the solution uh, in the United States? to the transformation of the auto industry? Will German cars that are made, that contain those batteries be imported into the United States at a 2.5% tariff, which is what we have on vehicles? 
if you view EV or uh, the batteries as a critical input, which is listed under the new supply chain review, the 100-day supply chain review that President Biden ordered and which has reported back just recently, uh, these batteries are a critical input. And in that view, they need to be supplied and built in the United States. And so you know, what does that mean for this, these aspects of trade? I think there's really difficult questions here that, that we need to take a, go a little bit slower and a little bit more deliberate and work more closely with others. Um, John, Mary mentioned this whole question of, of investment, what type of investment is, is good or what type of investment is, is, is perhaps bad. Uh, generally speaking, when we're talking about the economic recovery and, and avoiding the economic recovery from becoming an excuse for more self-reliance, what, what does this mean from an investment point of view? What kind of investment are we looking for? And, and is there anything that you can say in terms of the, the scope or the scale of what, what we should be thinking about in terms of getting the global economy back on track? Oh, great question. I, it's really interesting. I um, two, two kind of, um, I hope they don't sound like sidebars, but um, I just recently joined the advisory board of um, the African Green Infrastructure Bank. And if you look at the G7 communique, I didn't join it because we mentioned in the G7 communique, the idea of um, investing in infrastructure in Africa, which is green and durable and actually is helpful is a net positive. And what's interesting is the African, the, green, the African Green Investment Infrastructure Investment Bank is actually you know, principally, you know, it's under the auspices of the African Union, et cetera. So it's an African innovation. And there's a determination there that uh, the nature of infrastructure investment in the continent should actually play in alignment with commitments to Paris and also to SDGs. Another, I hope again, it's not a sidebar. Well, it's probably not. So um, I, I did an analysis of, um, uh, we did, well, we did an analysis, I didn't personally do it, of the G20 stimulus packages uh, to have a look at them. You know, these are big numbers. In fact, uh, you give me a big number and I talk about the total G20 stimulus packages and they're even bigger, bigger, bigger. Uh, what's interesting is um, the disconnect between, again, the rhetoric of the investment in build back better, uh, build back a better world, build back green or whatever the terms are, and the reality. Um, so you get at one level a false narrative, particularly led, and there's a disconnect here, I think, between political aspirations and the advice of finance ministers, and I'll come to that in a second, where there is seen as the quickest way to actually revitalize the global economy is by shovel-ready, job-prone, traditional expansion of uh, investment in, in in airlines, things like that, usual sort of stuff. But actually, on proper analysis, that's not correct. I mean, it completely undercooks what um, job growth and what economic opportunity exists in uh, in other parts of the global economy. What we see is the disconnect is that it's almost, and I see that you see this a bit with the G7, you see a bit with the G20. There's a disconnect sometimes between various uh, organs of government where you've got quite strong political affirmation, by the way, for the greening the world from uh, the political class in Australia would be the Prime Minister, Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. But it seems that when it goes to the finance ministries, what comes up as the advice, which most political advisors can't counter, is actually, no, 
that's all long bow. Uh, you actually, right here, right now, bricks and mortars where it is, and we can actually count for this in the next 12. So there is a disconnect there. And so that's one of the observations we, may, we, we would make that, um, in a way, um, the argument we should be having is actually with finance ministries about the nature of the infrastructure packages or the or the um, investment packages that are coming forth because the rules or the approach they're taking is fails to recognize the context in which we're operating, basically. And, and in that context, is there anything you expect from um, the G7's new idea for a green belt and road? Or are you just waiting to see how that's going to translate into actual initiatives? I, I sit on the board of... Um, uh, a number of investment funds. Um, we are heavily, we're big investors in infrastructure. You know, there are two big global Australian players. One is Macquarie and the other is IFM. I'm on the board of IFM. We're a conglomerate nation of pension funds. We have about 180 billion Aussie um, and we invest in uh, airports, utilities, roads, things like that. So I'm interested, we're interested in this. The bit we, we we continue to see, and, and and ICC and IFM are actually we're both participating in the um, the Blue Dot Network process, which I think Mary and you will be familiar with out of the OECD. But the fundamental is not talking about things. I mean, if I was given a penny for every conference about increasing investment in infrastructure, yeah, I would be doing pretty well. Um, the kind of rules are known, but it's actually bringing the private sector discipline into the public sector and actually getting market-ready projects. That's the bit that's still missing. And so, yeah, I can understand the geostrategic uh, importance of the green belt and road and don't, don't mention the word China in the midst of it. But what's it going to look like? It's like also when we redefine Asia-Pacific and Indo as Indo-Pacific and magically what are we all supposed to be trading with India and investing in India, it's actually pretty hard. Um, so actually, if you look at the names that are given and the reality of what happens, most of the trade and investment in Asia Pacific still happens in Asia Pacific. It doesn't happen in Indo-Pacific because that's where the opportunities are. There's a lot of work to be done. And so with the green belt and road or the or green, blue, whatever you call it, yeah, well, let's see the rubber on the road. Uh, let's even see the US not just unleash an announcement of an infrastructure package for the US market, but actually deliver the kind of regulatory reform that would enable public-private partnerships or asset recycling on assets, for example, airports, things like that. You know, how many times have we been told to expect that? Sorry, that's the question. No, I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, and, and then, Mary, a, a final, final question for you. Just say a year from now, given what we know from the Biden administration over the past couple of months, um, we have the G7 um, communique. We've talked a little bit about that. We know a little bit about what needs to be done to to achieve that global economic recovery. But do you think we're going to achieve any degree of 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 recovery, notable recovery that doesn't include significant protectionist or economic nationalist policies? That's a big question. I think we will achieve recovery. The question is, will we make serious progress on the underlying issues that have plagued us for so long, including, you know, creating inclusive economies, greening our economies, um, taking on challenges like the global pandemic that are actually, you know, globally morally fair? I don't know. I really don't know. I think that when you read what comes out of the Biden administration, you see an impulse 
to do good. Unfortunately, you also see the unwillingness to really understand what the trade-offs are. So, for example, in terms of rebuilding the American labor force uh, and American manufacturing, which is part of what the Biden administration like to do, you also see them arguing for um, support for for free and fair trade, as is often called, and uh, higher labor and environmental standards, all of which most of us would say fair is a good word, you know, high labor standards. These are all good things. But they often, when the rubber hits the road, means that developing countries uh, are seen as not being able to participate. So I, I think that um, we have to think about how these challenges work together. What are reasonable trade-offs? We're not going to get to this inclusive green world quickly. And we need more public investment. Now, the public investment is coming. You know, the the deficit hawks have been outnumbered, at least in the short run. Um, And I think, as John says, the question is, you know, will the barriers that keep this these funds from being used wisely or in the most wise way, will they be tackled Uh, because they have a lot of support behind them? Uh, things that limit competition, for example, have a lot of support behind them. Uh, you know, just like the U.S., I hate to say it, but a very simple thing, U.S. steel and aluminum tariffs. It seems like a no-brainer that they should be pulled off of Europe, but we see that they're still not. And it's unlikely that they may be or that they will be until after the you know midterm elections in the United States or even after the next election. So, uh, you know, that's that just shows how hard it is once these interests are there to do the right thing and to face up to the fact that there are some really difficult trade-offs. Um, on greening the economy, we, we know what it is. We have to, we have to sunset the, um, a lot of the fossil fuel industry. And in the United States, that's a hard, bitter pill to swallow right now. Yeah. Well, we'll have to return to that in about a year's time to see where we, where we stand in the run-up to the, to the midterm elections. But John, for, for you, final question. Um, the international private sector must look at some of these conversations that policymakers and governments are having and think, oh my gosh, here we go again. We've been around the corner. They don't understand how business really works. What do you expect if you look into your crystal ball, say a year from now, have we improved that narrative about economic resilience not equating self-reliance? Or is business just going to do what business does, ensure that the products and the services are, 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 are delivered despite what governments say? Well, let's end on a positive note. Um, <laughs> I think business will do what business does. And I think um, what the ICC will do will be to seek to enable that. Uh, what I mean by that is clearly a critical issue putting um, a priority on this is enabling a globally curated commons for digital economy. The likelihood, to be frank, of global cooperation being such that we can achieve that is pretty low, and yet we must have access to it because the risk of failure to have, not even inter- well, interoperability is, is perfect, uh, but coordination is actually really important from a business perspective, which is why an institution like the ICC exists. Frankly, we are independent, for purpose, not for profit, 
arguably we're the largest second track uh, diplomatic process in the world. I mean, we have ICC China in the same room as ICC Australia. They're actually talking, which is kind of, uh, but also ICC Syria with ICC USA. So we are there. So what our job then is when governments can't act, it's for us to stand up and actually govern that space to the extent we can. And we have one benefit, not only are we full purpose not for uh, not for profit, we actually also have our own courts. So we actually do have the potential for a governance model. We've done it before, we will do it again. And it's not that weird because if you think about it, the process of change in the digital economy is going so quickly that regulators can't keep up. Right. So that of itself calls out for some form of interim alignment. This morning I was on a call with one of the big uh, blockchain consortia, which is the third ranking of them. They now recognize they need some governance as well because of uh, the risk of uh, a lack of trust of the way in which they operate, undermining their capacity to operate at the level they need. And we think that's we think we should be enabling that. And we think that until governments can catch up, we need to curate it. We also think in the end, what we may be able to do is discern those areas which we just should not be fighting over. It's interesting in the G7 um, uh, utterances, it's pretty clear that it's united within the G7 that they should not be fighting with China over climate change. That seems to be one area where we want global cooperation. We would like to creep that into the digital economy, to be frank. And then sometimes you've got to use the you know, use that positive territory. So I think business will go on doing what it's going to do. I think there's a there needs to be some deep reflection about the role of existing um, international organisations in the governance model there. Uh, you can only be disappointed in the performance of the United Nations, and I'm not personally criticising anyone there. But it's just that it's, it has not functioned in a way that's actually enabled greater cooperation. In fact, it's become a perverse tool the other way. So something's not working there that we need to reflect on. And the, and the point you made at the beginning, the need, the necessity for global governance, not just uh, related to the, the, the issue of vaccines or, or, or health supply chains, it covers the, the broad gamut of, of international trade policy, I, I would argue, and that's that's very well taken. Um, unfortunately, this is all we have time for. So I'm going to thank you very much, Mary Lovely, a Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute, and John Denton, Secretary General of the International Chamber of Commerce, for joining me today. And thank you very much for sharing your time and your insights with uh, with me. Um, if you are interested in the other expert conversations that are part of the AIG Global Trade Series 2021, please go to our website at www.aig.co.uk slash GTS. Thank you very much. The AIG Global Trade Series 2021 is an international partnership between AIG the Georgetown Law Institute of International Economic Law, Chatham House, the Klingendal Institute, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, the Jacques Delors Institute, and the International Chamber of Commerce UK and France. The Bertelsmann Stiftung is a knowledge partner of the series. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade series, and to listen to more podcasts on global trade, search AIG Global Trade Series 2021 or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.